So, good morning to 5 a.m. Mr. Scrum Show to all the podcasters and YouTubers, and later on LinkedIn, we'll we'll make cuts and put this out there. I have Kareem Harbot, and he has his new book, The Six Enablers of Business Agility, and how do we thrive in an uncertain, make sure I show your name there really good, you can see it. Now, Kareem, I saw you speak years ago at the Agile Philly Day. The presentation, the way you formatted, was awesome. You just tore around those, tore those uh, big giant sticky notes, and you went through everything. And I was really impressed to how you were so organized. Um, can you tell us about your journey to getting this where you are today? Uh, yeah. Um, so it's funny. Uh, <laughs> it, it, so I mean, I started my my career off uh, as a sort of mathematician by training, and then was a software engineer and project manager, right? Traditional project manager, right? So I worked in a kind of waterfall approach as a developer and I was a traditional project manager. I, I, I was asked to become a scrum master in about 2000, late 2008, early 2009. Um, I said, sure, I had not a clue what it was, right? Um, but I'd give it a go. And it was one of those moments where I was like, I, that, I want to do that. that. That's what I want my job to be. <laughs> I forget that. Um, and so... I threw myself into scrum mastering for, if that's a verb, um, for uh, uh, many sort of many years, like five or six years, like in the trenches with teams for sort of good six years, um, five five six years, um, and 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 it became clear that you know, I what I was doing there was impactful, but it wasn't as impactful. Teams have some challenges, right? But the challenges that they face really sit inside the team. The, the, the kind of the big impediments are way beyond the scope of the team. So I just found it more interesting to start tackling those. Mm -hmm. And the way my brain works is I love to group and categorize information. It was like, make sure I'm not missing stuff. Right? I love checklists. I love groups. And, and I ended up just collecting all of these tools and techniques over the, kind of the next six, seven years of my, of my agile coaching, which is more organizationally focused. Brought that into a model and a framework, and I was looking at early versions of it, included loads of stuff, and just sort of sliced it and diced it differently. And when I started training agile leadership, really focused in on it, and it ended up just being six key areas, right? which okay. I called the six impediments to business agility, until I was to told to stop being so grumpy and make it more uh, more positive. So it became go. the six enablers, um, and then it turned into a book. So uh, really, it's been a kind of evolution of, of my journey, but also the way my brain likes to categorize information really has led to this. Okay. And that leads me you right into the next book. Tell us a little bit about your journey to write a book, specifically this book, right? And, and <laughs> your journey or your first book. I, I never wanted to write a book. And then that's one of the first things I say in, in the introduction. Like it was never been an ambition of mine to write a book. I can't think of anything worse. And um, so, uh, you know, I very specifically studied subjects my whole life, which avoided writing essays. And <laughs> mathematics became a software engineer. I was like, please don't make me write stuff. Um, now, how did it happen? It's funny. So once I evolved the model, and, and it was a consulting model, right? It was never supposed to be anything else. Um, it was initially my wife that said, you should turn this into a book. And uh, I, I did one of those, I'm never going to do that. But if I were to do it, what might the structure be? And I kind of just drew out, I, I put the chapters on paper. That was my mistake. Never put something on paper if you don't want to do it, because your brain's going to make you do it in some way, right? Yeah. The stars will align to make it happen. And, um, and so I put it on paper, put it in the, the proverbial drawer, um, forgot about it. Then I was giving a talk in uh, at the Scrum Gathering in Austin. 
Right. Uh, so this was, I don't know, 2019, maybe. Um, yeah. And there, there, was, there was a lady there from a publishing company. She liked the talk and she said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I actually, I have. And here's what it would look like. Um, but I'm never going to do it. So all your um, stars are aligning in that, right? <laughs> I said, but I'm never going to do it. Right? This is kind of May, May 2019. Um, and, and she said, this sounds really interesting. How about you fill out this proposal? And so I filled out the proposal and then I said, like, I'm still not going to do that. And then they said, you know, we want to publish this. Will you do it? And, it, and then I just did it for some reason, had a rush of blood to the head and I signed the contracts to write a book. Um, and, and then I had to write the thing. But, you know, I was, I was off to a bit of a head start because I'd been gathering so much content and so many stories in each of these chapters, what became chapters, mm-hmm. through my training and, and through my consulting that really I had the content and all I had to do was turn it into a coherent um, structure and, and prose and throw stories and analogies in from so it wasn't like I was starting from scratch. I had it all. It was more pulling it together and, and researching and researching and finding the sources, turning it into a book from a person who's never written an essay, never mind a book, right? And so a massive, massive learning curve. But in doing so, I really clarified and I find it an incredibly valuable. If anyone's thinking about doing it, mm-hmm. it's both painful and incredibly valuable in equal measure. Um, and it really makes you focus and clarify what is it I'm trying to say, what's important, what's not important. And, and in that sense, it was it was an amazing experience. I kind of hope I don't ever do it again. Though it's funny you said we were talking a little bit earlier about how how your wife was like first book. So she was the one who started this journey. So <laughs> so so you you said the word for, say you said something about writing your first book. I did say that. So she did. She kind of. She encouraged me, and again, remember this is back in probably early 2019. She said, "You should, you should write this thing, right?" Um, and, and I was like, "Zero chance I do that." And um, the thing is, like, the way the stars aligned, you know, I signed the contract in kind of um, uh, October 2019, right? And uh, you know, by February 2020, there was a global pandemic. Right. Um, my kids were not going to school. My wife became <laughs> teacher to both of them, and I was stuck out here writing this book that I just said I would write, right? So. Yeah. I think it, it wasn't ideal, uh, so it became maybe a little more stressful than than uh, we planned it to be, and I probably got a few more grays down the side here than uh, than I ever thought I would. So uh, I, anyway, when it came out, I posted about this on Facebook, and uh, and it's about the only social media that my wife would see my posts on because she's not on LinkedIn or Twitter right. or anything. Um, and I said, you know, just published my first book, uh, and my wife just literally the first comment was. First book, question mark, question mark, question mark. Like, we are not doing this again. But she started you on this journey too, right? So, you know, it's like, hey, it's just your journey here. You yeah, started me I down a track, do right? So that's um, great. Um, in your book, can you give us one of your favorite stories out of the book? Yeah, I, 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 try, to, I try to bring in a lot of stories now. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the ones about, um, about sort of leadership and organizational transformations uh, people people might be familiar with or some would be familiar with some of them. But the one that I like is more of an analogy than a story, right? And and, and it's the analogy of um, there's a lot of evidence out there to suggest that um, over time, uh, mammals in particular get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? They're, they're kind of evolved to be, but there's a competitive advantage to being big um, when, when you've got a stable environment there. And, uh, uh, and we you know, get bigger and bigger and bigger and um, um, and so, you know, we had two-ton wombats lumbering around in these big saber-toothed cats, the, the, the enormous dinosaurs. Right? But the really interesting thing here is, whilst there is a competitive advantage in that, when there is a dramatic change in the environment, 
right? Um, yeah. Like 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 what happened 66 million years ago at the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event when an asteroid slammed into the Gulf of Mexico. Right? Um, almost everything that survived that impact, and and only 25% of plants and, and animals did survive. By the way, 75% were wiped out, right. including the dinosaurs. But of the 25% that survived, almost none of them weighed more than 25 kilograms. That's about 55 pounds for you folks, mm-hmm. right? Um, they were all small, like cat size and below, um, rodents and things. Um, and it turns out that when, when there's a period of stability, scale is really important. When there is a dramatic change in the environment, um, being nimble, as we know, it yeah. is, is important, right? And the ability to quickly adapt and reproduce in a new environment. And it was the smaller creatures that were able to do that. And it's such a nice analogy for you know the 20th century with a period of stability where size and scale and economies of scope and scale led to your competitive advantage to now when we've got this really turbulent, volatile, complex environment. And it is, the, it is those that exhibit business agility and innovation that survive and thrive. It doesn't matter. It's not big versus small anymore. It's nimble versus not nimble. And I, I just really like the parallel there. And I sort of start one of the chapters off by talking about that because you know it really struck me as, as being something that really drives home what we talk about. That's funny you say that. I started a program called uh, Thinking Into Results. And one of the examples he talks about all these big companies have these small innovation groups that make the transformation, that that get it to the next stage. So what you just said was, is spot on for what he was saying about being the small group in these giant behemoths of a company that really make move the needle. So it's kind of interesting yeah. you said that. Yeah, okay. you need to be both small and far enough away to not get sucked into the, to to the bureaucratic machine right that's important okay cool that'll lead into another question so we have six enablers here right six enablers can you have business agility without all six being in process yeah that's a question i get a lot because because often like people who come on my training like um you know what can i do if i can't change that because you know we can't like the finance director isn't on board or the hr director isn't on board i say and for me like you, you can always move the needle, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, but yeah, I, I like the analogy of an athlete, right? You, what do you need if you're, if you're a professional athlete? You need good technique. You need good mental, mental strength, right? You, um, you, you need um, physical strength, stamina, flexibility. Um, you, 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 need a, you need the right diet. Now, you know, let's say Mike, Michael Jordan, right? He's yeah. quite, a, quite a big sports yeah. star everybody yeah. knows. If you'd if have said, you know what, I'm just going to leave out one of those. I'm, I'm not going to eat well. I'm going to do everything else, but I'm not going to eat well, right? Yeah. Would, he be the, would he be the man we all know today? Um, or, you know, I'm going to do everything else, but I'm just not going to work on my technique. So, yes, you can probably be better than you are with just four or five of them. Mm-hmm. Will you ever be great? Uh, the answer is, it, for me, I've never seen it happen. And if you look at all of the, the most effective organizations on the planet, in some way, they are they are doing something that works for them in each of those areas. So, uh, like I said, it depends what your ambition is uh, and how effective you want to be. But really, the secret sources they all work together in a coherent, consistent way to, to sort of uh, in the direction that you want to go. So uh, that's been my experience. That's that's funny. As you were talking that, you brought the sports analogy. I was thinking rugby because what well, you do the last scrum, right? <laughs> and I used to play rugby back in the day, and now. You can think of it, okay, you'd be a rugby player. I don't, they're huge now. They're all strong and a lot bigger than I ever was. And, you know, they're 250 pounds. They got muscles, but you know what? They can also jog five, six miles every day. 
They yeah. need the word. They want the strength, but they need the endurance because they can't stop. Yeah. You know, they keep going. So you need that. So what you said that have that all around training and all six enablers, anybody on a rugby team, there's probably six or seven things they got to work on every day. Oh, for sure. Pro, and I, I right? mean sport because, you know, I, I used to be a professional athlete. Tennis was my game, right? Okay. Now, obviously, I wasn't very good, which is why I do this for a living. <laughs> but I certainly spent a lot of my youth doing that. And, uh, and you know, there's so much that you don't even think about. And we used to spend hours with sports psychologists just, talk, mm-hmm. just working on how you can perform when you're under stress. Right? Most people don't see that side of it. They see kind of the other side. Yeah. So, you know, you, there's so much you need to think about. It's, and people just focus on this, but actually you've got to broaden your perspective. And you probably had coaches for every one of those aspects of the game, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Physical coaches, flexibility coaches, technical coaches, mental weight, like everything, separate person, because there's no one who knows all of those things. Right. And it's you always, you talk about helping these corporates is a lot of times you're like, oh, I just want a coach to help start off. And so you, you don't understand, it's a long journey. There's a lot of stuff to get coached on. They're like, what, really? So I love your six enablers because it now gets them to think about these different areas. Okay. I was looking at your book. Um, you wrote down, I thought this was a very, of all the areas that really just stuck out with me was governance and funding. Mm. I always hear that, but you actually wrote it down and why this part is important and yeah. I'm, I'm curious can you can you give a elaborate on that a little bit i'd love to greg and and you know like that's the one that people always be like huh because yeah you know, you know leadership like we, we know about agile leadership we know that culture is important we know that right. like team structures are important we know that people on hr side is important processes practices frameworks or what i call ways of working is important governance and funding um yeah and here's why right <laughs> this comes up on my scrum classes never mind like when we're talking about enterprise agility why because every organization i've worked with almost at the start of the journey at least you know they work on um projects with fixed scope fixed budgets fixed delivery dates right and when you've got i get this, this number one question i get in my scrum classes how can we be agile if we've got fixed scope and a fixed deadline right Here, let me rephrase that how can I respond to change while simultaneously not responding to change is what you're saying there, right? right? And, and of course, you, you can see the answer is not a chance. Right. Um, so this whole mentality of I'm going to get a fixed scope and then deliver against it is very much assuming we know exactly what that fixed scope should be, which is we know is very difficult when we're in the complex space. That's why the whole agile movement emerged, right. the software development. But now we're just saying, you know, whatever you're doing, if it's highly complex and unpredictable, there needs to be a more experimentational or experimental approach, learning as you go. So things like lean startup, design thinking, getting in, working with the customer, build, measure, learn, inspect and adapt. And if your governance process doesn't allow that, it's over before you even start. Right? If you don't allow uh, running multiple experiments, killing those cheaply that don't work, doubling down on those that do, all the while collaborating with your customer and evolving the solution based on the feedback you get. Most organizations are structurally designed to, to, for that to not happen. They've got, right. you know, I, I did whole modules on change control when I was a project manager. Yes, it's like, yes, it's yes. basically, how can we not learn from what we're doing? And, right. and if you've got that model in place, you're never going to get any level of agility. So, you know, we can, we can, we cannot avoid that conversation with finance or PMO or governance or, whoever it is that controls that model to say, hey, we need to, we need to approach this differently. And so that's why it's there. It's just an important part of the journey. Yeah, I just thought, I just thought it was uh, 
interesting you brought that up because I always hear about funding teams and get uh, continuous funding and not this project management type funding thing. And I just thought it was the timeliness of what you you brought that topic to the forefront. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, okay, how can people buy your book? Find you. They buy, they buy, can buy this book. Upside down. Uh, is, well, whatever your your favorite retailer is, I'm going to assume that a good chunk of people are going to be on uh, a certain uh, a certain book retailer called Amazon, and uh, and you'll, you'll find it on Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk, Amazon. Whatever it is in your in your in your country, right? Um, it's it's there. I have a, a little website called SixEnablers.com where you can find out a bit more information. I've got a bunch of free downloads on there as well, which some people find quite useful. Check that out. Um, but basically, yeah, all of the major retailers, there's an audible and an audio book, uh, which I, I hear you were listening to um, with uh, yeah. and a voice, which is almost certainly not mine. Yes, um, but, <laughs> that uh, was a part I, I enjoyed. I just got a giggle out of that one. That was funny. Yeah. So uh, he's a very, very well, uh, well-spoken BBC newsreader reading it. So it's definitely not me with my North London twang, uh, but he reads it well. Um, yeah, you've got the Kindle version, Apple Books. Wherever you like, um, but uh, it's it's out there, thankfully, and, uh, and and I don't have to continue writing it. Um, although you know, maybe there'll be a second edition one day. Yeah, and, and oh, definitely. And if you make a second edition, you're going to come on the show, right? Because oh, by then sure. we're going to have thousands of episodes. We're going to be world famous. We're going to get you out there. We're going to come. No, your second. I think it still counts as my first book if it's a second edition, so I can get around that whole first book issue. Oh yeah, um, you go. Get, you know, that'll. Yeah, Hans, first book. It's the only book. It's the only book. I just make new additions to it. Okay. This is incremental. Release two. I love it. Um, okay. So on my on the 5 a.m. Master Scrum show on Fridays, we do a fortune cookie Friday. And what I have is these things called agile accountants. And the way you listen to governance compliance, you know, gotta have certain fields in your system, you gotta have it all written out. If you don't have it, we're gonna dig you, we're gonna audit against you. So those are those agile accountants that say, you know, your user story should be as so-and-so, I want so that. And if you don't have that in your description, you fail the agile accounting test, right? You know this, yeah. before, right? Yes, so, I do. So here's the fortune cookie. It's been double sealed by the agile accountant. So we got a plastic cover and inside is a cookie, a story. And what we're going to do here is we're going to pull whatever message from the agile accountants and your job is to apply that to your book. So this will be a totally new thing. So I'm going to open this up. And now I usually have to take my glasses off so I can read it. See, at least you still have hair. It may be turning gray, but mine's gone. And my eyes are going bad. Okay. Ooh. Okay. The greatest truths are the simplest. And so are the greatest people. So the greatest truths are the simplest. And so are the greatest people. So how can you apply that to your book? Thinking about the the six enablers of business agility. You know, uh, the greatest truths are the simplest. You know, uh, many many people have have spoken about. You know, it's it's easy to add complexity, right? Um, to add another role, to add another department, to add another silo, to add another person who is coordinating, right? But um, if I apply that to one chapter of the book, it's going to be organizational structure, right? Because the greatest structures tend to be the simplest. Uh, um, and, and so, you know, you're, you've got, a t it's not rocket science. We've got a team. They are cross-functional. 
They are autonomous. They interact with other cross-functional autonomous teams. We don't need this complex structures of coordinators and interfaces and governance and rules. We just need empowered teams that can interact with, with each other, right? And in that sense, you know, people often say to me, why, what, what, how, like, but are my organization so complex, right? And I say, you're complex because you designed to be complex. Yes. The most effective designs are the simplest ones, right? And so the greatest truth, the greatest organizational designs are the simplest, right. I'd say. And I say, go with simplicity and add complexity only when you have to. That's how I can manage to tenuously link that to my book. That's perfect. Right spot on. And we'll go with that.